know, I woke up and began the process of getting ready for church, and I spent probably you know, the first little while in, in prayer and, and reviewing our, our message for today. And once I had gotten that done, once I got my head and my spirit in what I felt like was the right place, I felt like I'd gotten prepared there, then I decided, you know, it's time for me to prepare my body because I, you know, I don't wake up looking like this, and I suspect many of you don't either, right? I mean, I have to get in the shower. I have to, believe it or not, I actually have to comb my hair and, you know, shave my face and get myself ready to go. And so I began that process and started getting myself ready. And after I had gotten dressed and picked everything out, then I decided that what I needed to do was I had to go into my closet and I had to pick out the appropriate shoe for this morning. And I noticed that all of you immediately, your eyes went, I've settled on these honeys right here. These are pretty nice. But before I got there, I had to do some work, right? I, I mean, I couldn't just walk in and pick out the shoe and get going. I mean, because first of all, my favorite shoe, I don't know if you know this, my favorite shoe is a flip-flop. And I feel most comfortable when I'm in those things, but I thought, you know, it's kind of chilly outside. It's probably not the most appropriate footwear for this morning, so I'm not going to put on my flip-flops. And so then I was looking at my shoe rack, and I, you know, I moved on to the next thing, and, and I saw all my dress shoes there. I have these shoes that are a little bit more formal. I have a black pair, and I have a brown pair, depending on, you know, what, what suit I might wear. And I know that you guys think that I never wear a suit, so why would I need those kinds of shoes? But I do have them just in case I ever do need to wear a suit. But uh, so I've got those. And then I, you know, I looked, I was like, ah, a little bit too formal for what I want to do this morning. So I moved on and I thought, well, maybe I should take a look at all my sneakers, right? You know, I've got shoes for racquetball, which I haven't played. How many years has it been, Juan? It's been, I, and I've still got those shoes that I used to wear when Juan and Alex and I played racquetball. It seems like forever ago, but I've still got those shoes right next to my racquetball bag just in case I decide I want to get out and play racquetball. So I got those shoes. Those are pretty nice. And then I got another pair of tennis shoes that I might wear for workout in the yard. And then I got another set that's in there that I wear for every day. How many of you have those, the everyday tennis shoes that you put on or sneakers and, and so that you can go out and just, you know, all your bopping around. I thought, well, probably not the most appropriate this morning. Those aren't going to work well. So I kept going through my shoe rack, and then I had all my business casual. This is the stuff that I, you know, that I wear to work every day. So I've got several different styles, several different colors for what I might be wearing when I go to work. And then I had these boots in there, and I've got boots. I, I mean, more boots than you can imagine. I have boots for the snow. I have boots for work around the yard. I've got boots for just dressing casually. I also have have in the back of my work car a pair of boots that have steel toes on them. Just in case I go by to visit him and he does buy me lunch one of these days at work, I'm going to have my safety toes shoes on because I've got to have those. Finally, you know, I'm going through all of my shoes and I finally settled on, on these. Aren't these great? Are you glad I got these, these on? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of work to get there, wasn't it? But it seems like we have shoes for all occasions. How many of you feel like you have shoes for all occasions? This morning, I was looking at my shoe rack and I was like, man, I've got like probably 12 pairs of shoes in here in my closet and I only need to wear one. And then I thought of the ladies' dress shoes. How many of you know the name Imelda Marcos? Have you ever, do you remember that name? Years ago, back in 1986, the president of the Philippines, his name was Fernando Marcos, and his wife, Imelda Marcos, they got in big trouble. They were kicked out of the Philippines, they were exiled, and they had to live you know, the rough life in Hawaii after they were kicked out of the Philippines. That's where they ended up being exiled. So they were living this really lavish lifestyle in the Philippines. And what would happen is 
the Philippines were going through this really terrible financial crisis. And while the Philippines as a nation were going through this economic crisis and all the civil unrest, Imelda Marcos had a spending problem. And Imelda would go out and she would go shopping and she had amassed, <laughs> she had amassed over a thousand pairs of luxury designer shoes in her closet. And I thought, wow, nobody would have that many shoes. And then I did a little digging around, and guess what I found? Mariah Carey has a shoe collection that is even greater than that. As I started searching and and trying to find out all of the different shoes that all of these different famous and rich people have, it turned out that there were more shoes in the closets of the rich people than probably there are people to wear them in Hollywood. There are so many shoes out there. Because we have to have the right shoe for the right occasion. My shoes have to match my purse, right? They have to match my mood. I have to be wearing the right shoe. And if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, what would happen if we were to send Aaron Rodgers out onto Lambeau Field, let's say in the middle of December, and he gets out there and we've got him in a pair of bowling shoes? And I know that some of you are thinking we wouldn't notice the difference, but you probably would. I think he'd be sliding all over the place, he'd be falling down, and he'd probably get hit enough times that they knock him out of the game by halftime. That's what I think would happen. Or what would happen if we had an airplane full of U.S. soldiers, and we're going to drop them in behind the enemy lines, we got them all decked out, they got their helmets on, they got all their gear on, they've got their weapons, we load them up, we put them in the airplane, and we get behind the enemy lines, and we drop them out, and we've got them wearing flip-flops. How's that going to go over? It's going to be a problem, right? They have to have the right shoe for the right occasion. And we wouldn't dream of allowing our American troops to go into battle wearing flip-flops. We want to protect their feet. And as I thought about it, I was like, well, you know, today we have really nice roads. We have really nice sidewalks, don't we? I mean, everywhere you go, there's pavement. Everything is paved. The roadways, the walkways, everything is really smooth. It's all level. I mean, in your houses, you have beautiful carpet. And those of you who don't have carpet probably have hardwood floors, or maybe you have ceramic tile, and some of that is even heated to comfort your feet so that your feet aren't too cold as you're walking across the ceramic tile in the mornings. And then when you're ready to go somewhere, you walk across your carpet, you walk across your hardwood floor, and you step out onto the garage floor that has been very, very nicely finished concrete, and you get into your car. And when you slide your feet into the car, what do you rest your feet on? More carpet. So you even have carpet inside of your cars. And then what you do is you drive in these carpeted cars and you come to church where you have a brand new parking lot. It's all been newly paved and everything is smooth and comfortable. And you get up and you walk into the church and you walk across more carpet. It's beautiful, right? I mean, how easy is it for us to do that? But I want you to know that it hasn't always been like that. Things weren't always this well-maintained. Things weren't always this well-prepared to take care of your feet. Your feet weren't always so comfortable. And we needed to put great care into making sure that the surfaces were just perfectly prepared for your feet. And as Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians, even though the Romans were still improving many of the modes of travel and they were paving absolutely everything, they had many paved roads, you need to know that things weren't like they are now. Things weren't the way they are now. You see, most most of the paths in the Roman Empire at the time were uneven. They weren't smooth, they were rough, and they were filled with rocks, and there were sticks absolutely everywhere. 
And so the armies who had better shoes were able to travel faster. The armies who had better footwear were able to move more quickly across rougher terrain for a longer period of time. And so as the Roman army expanded, the further they got away from Rome, the more treacherous travel became because the roads weren't as well prepared as they were in Rome. And so in order to navigate all of that, the Roman soldier had to have really good footwear. He had to have really good footwear, something that he could count on. And the shoe had to help him effectively manage to travel across all of the slippery roads, all across the rough ground, but it also had to help him on the battlefield because he didn't have 12 different pairs of shoes in his rucksack. He didn't have 12 different pairs of shoes in his closet. You see, often the armies that they would fight against would, out on the battlefield, rather than placing landmines and claymores like we do, they would take sharpened sticks and and they would drive them into the ground on the battlefield so that you know what would happen? So that an enemy, as he came onto the battlefield, if he did not have proper footwear, he would be disabled because he would walk across these sharpened sticks, they would poke him in the foot, and they would cripple him right away. Picture that. Enemy without proper footwear, whose foot had been badly injured, how well do you think he'd be able to fight? He wouldn't be very balanced. He'd be favoring one foot all the time. He'd be unsteady. He'd be easily knocked over. He'd be easily overtaken. He wouldn't be fast. He'd be off balance. He wouldn't be able to run very quickly. You see, they had learned that if you can destroy the feet of your enemy, he cannot stand his ground when you fight with him. Does that make sense? Destroy his feet and he won't be able to stand and fight when he's under attack. And so the Romans were very creative. They were very smart people. And they came up with a special footwear that was perfect for what they were doing. And they were called Caligae. And this is what they looked like. This is Caligae right here. Looks pretty simple. A couple pieces of leather. And I think when you first look at it, it's difficult to see that this shoe would bring much of an advantage to a Roman soldier. I mean, it's just a few straps of leather. It doesn't seem to offer a lot of protection against the weather or anything like that. It doesn't give the impression that it's very sturdy when you look at it, does it? It doesn't seem very sturdy. It doesn't seem to be a big deal. It doesn't seem like it's going to help as you're going across the rough terrain. But the thing is that it would lace up very, very tightly around the soldier's foot. He could draw it very tightly around his foot and around his ankle. And it would be very snug and it would not be likely to come off during battle. It would stay attached. As he was going across rough terrain, he would not have to worry about it slipping off like you would with a flip-flop. And then, in the area of Tuscany, there were some shoemakers who had gone a step further. They'd gotten really smart and they had developed these brass tacks that you see here. Do you see those? And so they developed these brass tacks and then what they did was they drove them into the bottom of the Cali guy. They took the tacks and they drove them into the bottom of the Caligae and the idea was it would help to get traction. It would help to optimize the grip of the shoe for the soldier as he's walking across rough terrain. And most importantly, it would help him. They would work almost like baseball spikes when they were in the turf and they were on the ground fighting and they were swinging axes and they were swinging swords and they were being slammed into by other soldiers. They could keep traction and they would not slip and fall and slide all over the field as they're in the middle of combat. He could plant his foot. And he could have a great deal of confidence that he could turn and he could twist and he could maneuver without his foot sliding out from under him. Well, as Paul sat in the Roman prison, as he was looking at 
the soldiers who were in front of him as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he knew the difficult conditions that those Roman soldiers faced as he looked at his feet. And he saw his shoes and he thought, you know, these guys probably really need a good shoe because they're facing some really difficult conditions out on the battlefield. And as he thought about it, he could imagine the similarities to the spiritual battle that every believer here faces today. He looked at the Roman soldier and he said to himself, you know, his cloak, this big outer overgarment, this this overgarment that he has on that's really long, if he doesn't pick that up and tuck it into his belt, if he doesn't gird up his loins, if he doesn't cinch that around him and tuck it in, he's going to trip every time he tries to run. He's going he's to get tangled up around his knees and his ankles and he's going to fall down, so he has to make himself ready to run. And then he said, if he's going to be ready to fight, he has to cover the important areas of his chest and his abdomen with his breastplate. This iron breastplate, this bronze breastplate that'll help to keep the arrows from making their way into his vital organs. He has to protect the vital part of his, area, his body so that he doesn't fall victim to an arrow placed right into his chest. And then he looked at the soldier and he said, wow, look at those, look at those shoes, look at his feet. He saw that they were protected. He saw they had spikes on the bottom of them. He was able to maneuver. And he thought to himself, you know, they have to be. His shoes have to be ready because if you can take away the soldier's footing in battle, he's an easy target. Now with all of that in mind, I'm going to take you to what Paul has told us in verse 12. You see, he's told us that if we're going to behave as people of our position, if we're going to behave like people who are believers should behave, then what's going to happen is you're going to have some trouble. You're going to end up in a battle. You're going to end up in a fight. In fact, you're going to be in the fight of your lives. It's a life and death battle, but it's not against other people like the Roman soldiers. It's not against other troops. It's not a physical battle that you're going to fight with the advanced weaponry or the advanced warfare of our time. You see, the battle that you are going into is not against flesh. It is not against blood, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities. It is against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. You battle against the spiritual forces of evil and you need to be ready. Satan and his demonic forces are constantly trying to trip you up. His demonic forces are constantly attacking you and they're constantly trying to trip you up. They're constantly trying to get you tangled. They're constantly trying to get you to slip and to fall down so that you'll be easy prey for them. Constantly fighting for the eternity of your soul. As you sit here, they battle and they attack and they are fighting for the eternity of your souls. They want you to fall short so that you're unable to spend your eternity in the presence of God. And they will do absolutely anything that it takes to stop you from being in that place with God. They want you to slip up. They want you to stumble. But you see, Paul says, you are not to slip and fall. You are not to stumble. It is not fitting for people of your privileged position to fall down like people who don't have shoes on. Instead, you're to stand firm with your feet firmly planted on the ground. And so Paul says in verse 13 that you and I are to take up the whole armor of God. Put it all on because you're in the fight of your lives. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all that you can stand firm. In Paul's mind, the believer who is in the battle of his life 
the battle for his very eternal soul, he needs to be prepared. This is a message of preparedness. Just like the Roman soldier, that believer needs to gird up his loins. He needs to be prepared. He needs to be ready to run. He needs to be ready to fight. He has to tuck that outer garment into the belt of truth or into the belt of genuineness so that he's able to engage the enemy without tripping and stumbling. If he's not a genuine believer... If he is not the real deal, he will be overwhelmed as soon as the battle starts. He needs to protect the vital areas of his mind and of his emotions. We talked about that last time. Those are the areas where Satan will attack you. Those are the areas where Satan will tempt you. He tempts you in your thinking. He tempts you in your feeling. And he wants to cause you to sin there. Because he knows those are the most vital areas in your life. And so what he does is he incites you to wrong thinking. He incites you to wrong feelings. He incites you to sinful emotion. And so you need to protect those areas. Do you know that? You need to protect those vital areas. And we do that through righteousness. That's what the Bible teaches us. And I want you to know as you live a holy life, as you live a life that is separated from sin, and a life that is separated and set apart to please God through righteous behaviors, those vital areas of your thinking and your emotions are protected. That's what we talked about last time we were together. But Paul says there's a little bit more to it than that. And so I want to take you to our verse for today, and it's verse 15, and this is what it says. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So you can see the imagery here. It's just a continuation of the soldier who's on his way to battle, And you can almost picture him as he sits there lacing up his Cali guy. He's tying them up, fitting them snugly, pulling the leather tightly and securely around each of his feet as he's getting ready to stand up and engage in battle. He's ready to go. He's properly equipped. He's got his shoes on. Listen, friends, you can be a genuine believer. You can protect your thinking and your emotions. But if you are slipping and sliding all over the battlefield, if you cannot stand up and protect your feet, you are not going to be much of a match for Satan. You see, you have to have solid footing. You have to have solid footing. You have to have good traction. You have to prevent yourselves from slipping and sliding all over the place. You have to have on the right shoes. You have to make sure that you're covering your feet with the right thing. And you have to have them drawn tightly around your feet so that you're ready to go. And so as we take a look at this verse, can you see what it is? What is it that makes you ready in this verse? What is it that holds your feet securely to the field in battle? It's the gospel of peace. It's the gospel of peace that does that for you. And so I want to take a moment just to help you understand what that is. How many of you know what the word gospel means? Do you know what the gospel is? It's the Greek word euangelion, and it is a compound word, and it comes from the word, it's a prefix, the word you, which means good, and it comes from the word angelos, which is a messenger, and that's where we get our word uh, angel, in fact. So the angel is a messenger, right? So the euangelion is a good message. You see? It is good news. It's the good message. The gospel is a good message. The gospel is good news. And verse 15 tells us that it is the gospel or the good news of what? Of peace. So what does that mean? I mean, how can we say that it's peace when we're talking about going into battle? How can we say that it's peace when we're talking about struggle? That doesn't make sense to me, does it to you? As I thought about it, I thought, you know, 
It's really important for us to understand. I mean, how does the good news of peace prepare you to do battle? And so to help you understand that, I'm going to take you to Romans 5 for a couple of minutes. So if you'll just follow along with me here in Romans 5, I'm going to take you to verse 6. And this is what Paul says. He says, for while we were still weak. Now, this is while we were sinners, Paul says. While we were sinners, Paul says that the state of a sinner is one of weakness. So while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. So you catch what he's saying here? Implying that for unrighteous people, no one in their right mind is ever going to die, right? We might, we might think about dying for somebody who's a good guy. We might think about dying for somebody who's righteous and who has his act together. But nobody in their right mind is going to go die for a dirtbag. Nobody's going to go out and die for the one who is unrighteous. Nobody's going to go out and die for the one who's lawless and a sinner. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood. And I'm going to stop right there. So I want you to understand what's happening here. Verse 6 says that we were weak. Verse 7 says that we were unrighteous. So clearly, we are not in a good spot here, are we? We're weak. We're not righteous. But it gets even worse than that. Paul tells us in verse 10 what it means to be weak and unrighteous. Take a look at this. For if while we were what? Enemies. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So when we were sinners, friend, I want you to understand, we were God's enemies. When you were a sinner, you were God's enemy. You were His adversary. You were fighting against Him. You were standing in opposition to Him. But while you were still on the battlefield trying to fight Him in the middle of your sin, Christ died for us. And the good news is that in His dying, you have been made right before God if you simply have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That you, an adversary to God, that you, a child of death, has been made right before God simply because you have faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, if you are the one who has faith in Jesus Christ, now I'm going to step backwards and I want you to go to verse 1, and I want you to see what happens. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So Paul says that you do have faith in Jesus Christ and you have been made right before God. Now look, so you are no longer God's enemies. You're no longer his adversary. But on the other hand, now look, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see this? Therefore, since we have been made right by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, listen. What Paul means when he talks about the good news of the gospel, what Paul means when he says the gospel of peace, the good news of the gospel of peace is this. The point is that you stand in battle with peaceful hearts, not against God. You are not battling against God, but that you stand in battle with peaceful hearts toward those things that are attacking you. Is that what that means? No. He doesn't mean that you are at peace with the things that are attacking you. He doesn't mean that you're at peace with Satan and the wiles and his schemes and all the schemes of the world as they attack you. You don't stand there with warm, fuzzy feelings in your hearts about the enemy and his schemes and all of the things that he's doing to destroy you. You don't have peace. You don't have tranquility in your hearts about the temptations and other tools that Satan would use to destroy you. Friends, listen closely. You don't make peace in the world. 
But you are able to stand firm with your feet firmly planted on the ground because you have peace with God. So while you're in the world where there is no peace, you have peace with God. And so you are able to stand firm. You don't have to be afraid. You can stand firm in the middle of the attack and in the middle of temptation. I want to help you understand. I'd like to illustrate that for you if I could. And to do that, I'm going to take you to uh, 1 Samuel. And we're going to look at chapter 17 quickly. At this point in the Bible, we're at the time of Saul, who is Israel's first king. And the army of Israel was drawn up in battle against the Philistines. You remember the story. This is one that you were taught at probably from a very early age. The Philistines had this really big guy, this really tough guy on their side, and his name is Goliath. So they have Goliath, this big giant, this big tough guy, and nobody can beat him. And here's what happens in 1 Samuel 17, verse 24. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. And who wouldn't, right? That makes sense. They see this big, ugly giant, and he's been killing anybody that comes out to face him, and so they're afraid of him. And anytime he stands up and shouts at them, they all take off running, just like in a cartoon. And it makes sense to me. That's what I would do, too. And meanwhile, standing behind the giant, standing behind Goliath, are these Philistines, this whole entire army, and they're taunting the Israelites. And they're taunting them and they're shooting their mouths off because they're standing behind this really powerful giant and to get to us, you've got to get through him. Do you see? And so they were emboldened. They felt great. They had this great sense of confidence. As long as he was in front of them, they were confident. But as you know, there was this young boy named David and he came along and he decided that he would go out and he'd fight against the giant. You know the story. He took a, a few rocks and he took his slingshot and he took his slingshot and he fired off a rock and it hit Goliath and sunk into his forehead. Goliath fell to the ground. David walked up to him, took the giant's own sword and cut his head off. Fight's over now. And do you know what happened when that happened? When David killed the giant, this is so interesting to me, the Philistines were no longer tough. In fact, verse 51 tells us that when they saw that Goliath was dead, they were the ones who became horrified and they took off running. They ran away because the most powerful one who was in front of them protecting them was now dead. He was gone. So they had no confidence anymore. Let me give you one more illustration. I'm going to take you to the book of John. And we're now at the night before Jesus' death. It's the night that he was arrested. And this is a great example of what it means. So you're going to remember that Jesus had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying with his disciples. And when the group of armed Roman soldiers came along, possibly numbering as many as 600 of them, 600 trained killers, 600 Roman soldiers carrying torches and clubs and spears and shields and weapons, and Jesus stepped out to meet them. And by now he's already awakened his disciples and they've gotten up and they're, you know, scrubbing the sleep out of their eyes and they come walking forward. And Peter has somehow made his way to the front and he's standing somewhere near Jesus. As this armed mob comes in, Peter's made his way now to the front. This angry mob of 600 people carrying torches and weapons come forward into the garden and Jesus steps out of the darkness and he addresses them first and he says, whom are you seeking? Jesus stood before them and he said, whom are you seeking? And do you know what they said? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now listen, Jesus says, a go a me, I am. And what happened? All 600 of these trained killers fell backwards and landed on the ground at the words of Jesus Christ. Armed, trained assassins come walking into this garden 
Jesus Christ steps out of the darkness and He says, I am. And every single one of them falls down. So now Peter's thinking, wow, this is, this is awesome, man. This, did you just see what happened here? And so you know, he sees this. And he's got this courage that's just building up in his heart. I mean, all Jesus had to do was say, I am, and everybody fell over. I mean, I've worked, this is it. We're totally going to do it now. And so he's feeling emboldened. You see, he had been waiting for Jesus to take control of Israel. And he thought that Jesus would be the physical king of Israel. And he thought he was going to insert himself as their king. And now here's this army of 600 people coming forward to find Jesus. Jesus speaks the word, I am. And they all fall down. And Peter's like, yes, this is it. We're going to take these guys. They can't even stand up when Jesus talks. And so now this courage just wells up inside of him. And he's thinking, we're totally going to take over. And so what he does is he takes out his sword and he takes a swing trying to chop off the head of the nearest guy to him. The guy ducks. Peter's a fisherman. He's not really good with swords. He cuts off the guy's ear instead. Now listen, it was 600 armed killers against Jesus and 12 disciples. And between the 12 of them, between the 13 of them, do you know how many swords they had? One. And it was in Peter's hand. And he attacked. What in the world made him think that he and his one sword were going to take out these 600 trained killers? What would make him think that he could do that? What was it within him that made him think that he could win that fight? Nobody in their right mind thinks they're going to win that fight. But Peter did. And I want you to know there's only one reason that he thought they would win. It's because he knew that Jesus was his friend. And he had just seen what happened. And he knew that Jesus was on his side. And when those armed men collapsed by the sound of the voice of Jesus Christ, he knew that Jesus and his 11 buddies were stronger than those 600 men, even with only one sword. He knew they could win. Now, I want you to hear this. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, things changed for you. It's like you stand right now in the battle with Jesus Christ and the whole entire angelic host of God standing behind you. Do you see? They're on your side and they're standing directly behind you. And you can go into the battle with peace in your heart because you know that you are at peace with God because of the gospel message. You know that you are at peace with God and you can go into the battle with confidence. You have wrapped around your feet the good news that you are at peace with God and that He is on your side and that He now lives in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see? If you haven't heard anything that I've said, I want you to hear this. I want you to listen very closely to what I'm going to say. These next couple of minutes are the most important of our service today, and I want you to hear this. As a believer in this world, listen closely. As a believer, this world is hostile against you. This world is hostile against you. You're in a hostile environment. You stand right now in the middle of a hostile environment. Satan is the ruler of this world. And Jesus calls him the prince of this world. He says that he is the prince of this world. He is out to get you. He wants to attack you and he wants to ruin you. He wants to force you to sin and to fall and to slip into temptation. Young people, listen closely to me. Young people, he wants to ruin your faith before it has a chance to take root in your hearts. 
He wants you to walk away from your faith before you are able to make an impact for the kingdom of God. He wants you to walk away now before you are strong in your faith and before you are able to defend yourself, before you are able to stand firm. And so he will attack you and he will tempt you in the hallways of your school. He will attack you and he will tempt you in the classrooms of your schools and he will try to wreck your faith. Adults, he will attack you and he will tempt you all week in the workplace. And then when you get home, he will attack you and he will tempt you again. He's going to come after you relentlessly and he's going to attack you and challenge you in your most vulnerable areas. He wants you to be weakened in your thinking. He wants you to be weakened in your emotions so that he can drive a spear through your heart and kill your Christian life. Yet, while he comes after you, you can know that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, standing behind you is Jesus Christ. You can have boldness. You can have confidence because you're at peace with God. And you can know that He will not allow you to face more than you can bear. That's what the Word teaches. You can be firm. You can be firm knowing that He dwells in you. You can hold your ground. You can stand firmly. You can stand firm without fear, without worrying, knowing that even though Satan rules this world, even though Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, that according to 1 John 4, I want you to hear this, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's like the giant. You can be made strong knowing that he who is in you is stronger than the one who attacks you. I want to give you some practical steps, and I want you to take these home with you. I want to give you some practical steps to help you stand firm on the gospel of peace when Satan attacks you and tempts you because he's doing it every day. Now listen, the first step is to memorize and to go back to 1 John 4.4. You need to know that. You need to know he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You need to know that and you need to be confident in that. You need to know that Satan has already lost the war. You need to know that he's already lost, and you need to know that when you became a believer, the Holy Spirit took up residence inside of you. And that is the same power that has defeated Satan already. Let that sink in. It's the same power that has already defeated him. You have that power inside of you now, do you see? You have that inside of you. Jesus Christ is greater than Satan. The Holy Spirit is greater than Satan, and that power now is inside of you. Next, because you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, you are able to win. But you have to stand. You have to stand firm. You have to resist. You know what James 4, 7 says? When you're in the middle of battle, this is what you do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Do what? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So when Satan attacks your thinking, friends, when Satan attacks your emotions, young people, and he entices you to sin, he entices you to do something that you should not do, resist him. Because the Holy Spirit is in you, you're able to do that. Okay, Scott, I would, I would like to do that. How do I resist Satan? And I want to give you a couple tools to do that. I'm going to take you to Ephesians 4.27, and this is what it says. Give no opportunity to the devil. That's step one. Give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give him a chance. Don't give him a place. Don't open the door for him. Friends, listen. Listen closely. There's something really important that you have to realize here. If Satan has place, if he is tempting you, it can only be because you've given him a place. Do you see this? 
You have given him a place. Oh, but Scott, I, I don't want to give him a place. How do I keep from doing that? Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is what it says. So that you would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not, what? Ignorant of his designs. Listen, do not be ignorant of his schemes. Don't be fools. Don't be foolish. Don't be ignorant of his schemes. Know where he attacks you in your life. Listen, does he attack you in the area of sexual lust? Know that. Watch yourself in that area. Don't look at things that will open that door for him. Does he attack you in the area of your pride? Close that door and guard your humility closely. Young people, you may have a group of friends in your life, and you've noticed that when you hang out with those people, your behavior does not honor God. And you know that it's true. Maybe your language changes. Maybe there are other potentially damaging behaviors that you play around with, close that door. Don't hang out with those people. Protect yourself. Protect yourself in the areas that you know Satan will attack you. And finally, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 10.13, and I think you need to memorize this one, and you need to hold on to this. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but... With the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to stand up. You may be able to endure it. Listen, because of the truth that he who is in you, 1 John 4, 4, is greater than he who is in the world, combined with the truth that he will not allow you to face more than you can bear, you must confess that if you fall during times of battle, if you fall during times of temptation, it's not because you have to, it's because you want to. Confess it. The one that is in you is greater. And he promised he won't let you face more than you can bear. For you to fall is a choice. Confess it. Stand back up. Turn from your sin. And continue to resist. Friends, listen. The gospel message, the good news, is that you have peace with God through your faith in Jesus Christ. Cling to it and rejoice in that truth so that your feet will be kept firmly in place. And then you'll be able to keep your place as you face the attack of the enemy. You can stand strong, even in the face of terrible temptation, because you have fastened that truth tightly around your feet, and now you can stand. Because the guy standing behind you is greater than the guy who's fighting and standing before you. Do you see that? Father, I thank You that You're on our side. I thank You that because of our faith in Jesus Christ that You have put inside of us the power of the Holy Spirit that will help us to stand in time of temptation. I thank You that we can stand firm. And Lord, there are people in this room right now who are struggling with temptation And it's threatening marriages. It's threatening relationships. It's threatening their lives with you. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to allow this truth 
to take root deeply in their hearts. I pray that you would pierce their hearts right now and that they would be strengthened and empowered to resist and to stand firmly on the gospel of peace knowing that greater is the one who is in them than the one who fights against them. Lord, I pray that you would shelter us and that you would protect us, that you would make us strong in your word, that we can stand firm as we're attacked. We pray these things in Jesus' name.